I don't know if you've ever been on a group tour before. You know the ones that I mean. You might have been a package holiday that you go on with a group of friends and you tour around a place or a country with them, often on a tour bus, you might remember. Uh, it might have been a mission trip or some other purpose-driven trip that you've gone on. It might even be a simple road trip that you take with friends. I've personally done a number of tours like this over the years, uh, from touring Iceland with a group of friends, which was an amazing experience, uh, to a package tour around Egypt with people that I didn't know. I've also been privileged enough to visit countries for mission. So I've been to Kenya a number of years ago with some everyday church folks to visit the Compassion Run project that we, where we sponsor a number of children in. Uh, I know some go on Oak Hall Holidays, which is a UK-based Christian tour company. And as a church, as everyday church, we've even been blessed enough to go on a tour of the Holy Lands of Israel together. Something you will know if you've ever gone on a trip like this is that when you spend time together with people on a journey, something gets formed in you as a group, doesn't it? When you're on the road together, something happens. You come closer together. Even if you didn't know these people before, friendships and bonds are created and a sense of togetherness happens. You discover that ritual can often play an important part in these gatherings and these journeys. It might be group activities, it might be having meals together, it might be listening to the same tour, song on the tour bus over and over again until it's ingrained in your memory. But all these things can enhance the sense of feeling that we have of call as a group as we're going from one place to another to our destination. You know, the story of the Israelites is the story of many people going on tour together, of a group being formed into a people and eventually being forged as a nation with a clear sense of identity and purpose. Their journey was filled with ups and downs and it, it, would, it ultimately would take a little bit longer than the standard road trip goes on for. The Old Testament reveals to us that their journey wandering in the desert wilderness would ultimately take 40 years before reaching their destination, the promised land. But it was a journey that forged a nation, wholly committed to serving God and ultimately it was the fulfillment of a promise from God to his people. And today, we're going to look at the start of that journey, the start of the tour, if you will. See, we're continuing as a church on our walk through the book of Exodus. And there's an element of us going on a journey together as a church as we walk through this story. And I believe that one of the key themes that God is wanting to reveal to us as we, we do this walk through Exodus is that through understanding the journey of the Israelites, God is taking us on a journey as a church as well walking with him, continuing to form us as a people together under him and going where he is leading us. This is our journey to our own promised land, if you will. So just to recap the story of where we are so far, we've seen God perform all 10 of the plagues that he promised over the Egyptians led by their Pharaoh. They've culminated in the last and most brutal of these plagues, the death of the firstborn sons. We've seen that from Pharaoh, all the way from the, the top of the Egyptian uh, chain of command down to the lowliest prisoner in jail, everyone in Egypt has seen their firstborn sons and firstborn livestock die, except amongst the Israelites. We've seen the Passover commandment that God ordained, that those who painted their doors with the blood of a lamb would be passed over and spared this hor horrifying plague from God. And we've seen finally Pharaoh, a broken man, admitting defeat, and allowing the Israelites to leave Egypt as Moses had asked. They are ready for their journey. They're ready for the start of their tour. 
And today we're continuing the story by looking at Exodus chapters 13 to 15 together. And I'm just going to say to you that you are definitely going to need your Bibles open for this one. I often like to put up the verses uh, and we read along with them together. I think that's so helpful to read through Scripture together. But with three whole chapters to cover, there's no way we have the time to do that. If I read them all out, it would basically take all the time we have together today. And so we start at the beginning of Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. And the first thing we see is that God, that God wants them to do is to consecrate their firstborn to him. Now, consecrate is just a fancy word meaning to devote or to set aside for a purpose. The Israelites are about to go on this journey that will knit them together as a people. But God wants to make, the, make sure that they are ready for this before they go. By demonstrating his mighty power in killing the firstborn in all of Egypt, God wants his people to know that he exercises the same dominion over them as well. But he wants them to give their firstborn to him willingly, rather than him taking them the way he did to the Egyptians. This ritual continued to be part of Jewish tradition, and we read it uh, later on in the New Testament, some 1,400 years later, an infant Jesus was similarly consecrated in Luke chapter 2. It says, When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Later, of course, Jesus, making himself a willing sacrifice for all humanity, become, and became our Passover lamb and therefore became the last firstborn that ever needed to die to satisfy God's wrath. The next thing that God wants them to do is to commemorate this day. In other words, remember it always. I love how God talks to them in the past tense, like what is about to happen has already happened to God, because of course it has. He says things like, after the Lord brings you out, do this. When your son asks you, tell him this. Yeah? He talks to, to the Israelites about what's about to happen as though it already has. Because he knows what will happen already, God talks about it like it's history already. It's like he's hyping up the journey for them. You know when you're about to start a road trip or a tour or, or a journey with someone and, and someone will turn to you and say, this is going to be the best trip ever. This is a bit like what God is doing to them now. God wants them to make sure that they take, they take note of what he's about to do so that they will always remember it. And so, in Exodus 13, 17, the journey begins for the Israelites. And what we notice is, is that right from the beginning, God leads them his way and not theirs. It says, when the Pharaoh let the, the people go, God did not lead them on the, on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt, ready for battle. What do we learn here? We learn that a roundabout journey with God is sometimes better than the straight path that we intended to go on. Sometimes the detours make for a better and more memorable trip. Some years ago, my wife and I visited South Africa, uh, and we decided to make a road trip up the garden route. This uh, scenic coastal route starts just outside Cape Town, and takes you all the way to PE, also known now as a Khebera. We knew where we were going, 
and we knew the stops that we had to make along the way. But one day while we were driving, it was a beautiful day in the car, we just decided to take a detour. We didn't really know exactly where we were going, we just decided to turn off and let's see where the road takes us. Well, we ended up at a town called Stillby. I'd never been there before, I'd never even heard of it, to be honest with you. But it turned out to be so beautiful that we ended up staying an extra day just so we could enjoy this place and take in its beauty. And so our unexpected detour turned out in the long run to be one of the most memorable highlights of our trip. Why did God take them on this detour? Well, he didn't want to take them past any of the fortified towns because he didn't want to frighten them into thinking of turning back. I love the level of care and attention that God has, even when mapping out an unexpected route for them. He also wanted to confuse Pharaoh and ultimately glorify himself by forcing his people to rely on him. We'll find out more about that in a moment. But by guiding them with a pillar of fire by day and a pillar of cloud by night, he reminded them that he was in control and he was guiding them. They didn't have to worry about the direction so long as they knew that their God was with them. It's interesting, if you look at a map of what we think the, uh, the, the broad route that the Israelites took was, exactly how much of a detour it turned out to be to get from Egypt to the Promised Land. The Israelites would find this out themselves over the next 40 years of journeying with God. But God's way, we discover, is always better than our way. And it turns out that God's baiting of Pharaoh has had the desired effect because Pharaoh suddenly thinks that he's made a mistake in letting Israel go. He hardens his heart just as God had promised he would. He gathers his troops and he begins his pursuit of the nation. And as you can imagine, this petrifies the people and the tour suddenly takes a dark turn. They cry out to Moses. They say to him, why did you bring us all this way just to die? And in the midst of all of this, Moses turns to them and in Exodus 14 says this, do not be afraid, Moses said to the people. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see now, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only need to be still. Do you notice what Moses does there? He doesn't tell them to fight. He tells them to stand still. He says, the Lord will fight for you. Even though that we, we've just read that Egypt left, uh, Israel left Egypt ready for battle, he tells them that it's not going to be required. It's just like when we read in the New Testament, we put on the armor of God as we read in Ephesians 6. God wants us to be ready with the full armor of God, but not to fight, only to stand still and recognize he's the one that's going to bring the victory. So how does the Lord fight for them? Well, we read in verses 19 to 20 that the angel of God and the pillar of, crowd, of cloud move from the front of the, uh, the Israelite uh, march to the back of the people. David Pawson describes this as the vanguard becoming the rearguard, bringing darkness and confusion to Pharaoh's army, and yet light and reassurance to Israel at the same time. I'm reminded of David's words in uh, Psalm 139 where he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. He defends and he protects them first before he attacks the Egyptians. And then we come to perhaps the most famous miracle in the Old Testament, Moses parting the Red Sea. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, 
and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. We couldn't possibly do this passage justice at all, but I just want to draw out a few key points from it for you. Firstly, notice the attention to detail that God does when he performs this miracle. When God uses a strong wind to not only drive back the water into walls, but to make the ground dry land for the Israelites to walk on. Can you imagine wading through the bottom of a riverbed, the mud, the stickiness, the siltiness of it all? But God cares about his people. He makes the ground dry for the Israelites, men, women, and children who are frightened, who are panicky, who are laden down with all of their possessions that they could carry on their backs coming out of Egypt, with the bread still in its kneading trowels by their sides, with the plunder of the Egyptian gold and silver around their necks. They weren't a very, a very mobile or agile people at this point. And so God in his infinite care makes the ground dry for them so that they can walk freely and that they can cross the, uh, the Red Sea quickly and safely. But of course, this also means that a horse and chariot, especially an army-trained one like Pharaoh's, could, would be able to cross even quicker and perhaps overtake them and pursue them. And so we read then in, God, in verse 25 that God creates chaos amongst Pharaoh's army. He jams up their wheels. I don't know how he does it, but suddenly they get stuck. He unexpectedly slows them down. Probably they were crashing into one another in the confusion of it all. So much so that even the, the Pharaoh's army realize what's happening and they say, let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt, just as he promised Moses and the people he would do. Now, if God had just closed the seabed up again and left the Egyptian army on the opposite side of the, the bank from the Israelites, what would they have done? Well, let's go back and have a look at our map again. And we realize that they simply would have just ridden around the long way. And because they were on fast horses and chariots, they would have caught the pack you know, pretty easily and come back to haunt the Israelites once more. No. God had to make the freedom of his people complete. He had to do, win the victory beyond a doubt. And so, utterly routing Pharaoh and his chariots, he destroys them by drowning them in the sea. The verses tell us that not a single person escaped. And from that we have to infer, not even Pharaoh himself. They all drowned. The verses tell us that the Israelites looked back and saw the bodies floating in the sea afterwards. Now you might find that distasteful, even abhorrent. I know it certainly gives me a little bit of the creeps just thinking about that. But we miss something about the nature of God if we fail to see him as a warrior king, fighting and winning victory for his people. We rightly, as a church, focus a lot on the love of God, and it's important that we do so. But we have to hold that intention with his perfect justice, judgment, and the total annihilation of his enemies as well. God can't stand it. He longs to see victory for his people. If we don't keep these things in tension, if we don't have this view of God as a fighter and as a victor, then we have an incomplete picture of who he is. It's why scripture encourages us to fear or be in awe of the Lord, because he is terrifyingly powerful. We have to hold on to this as well. Secondly, notice the imagery and the symbolism of this scene. 
these walls of water going up on either side of the Israelites and then walking straight through it. Does it remind you of something? Does it remind you perhaps of water baptism? You know, when we baptize people here at Everyday Church, we explain it by saying, you go down into the water, symbolizing the death of your old life and your old identity. And then you come back up again in glorious resurrection, symbolizing a spiritual rebirth into a glorious new life. And that's exactly what happens here. As the people of Israel go down into dry land with walls of water surrounding them, they are dying to their old identity as Egypt's slaves, as Egypt's workers, as the kick-around people that could be pushed around at will. When they come up on the other side of the sea bank, they come up resurrected, raised into a glorious new identity. The nation of Israel has been spiritually born. A people under God has been forged through their obedience to him in the waters of the Red Sea. Things will never be the same after this. They cannot go back to their old life. The old is gone and the new has come. And their baptism comes at just the right time for them because they'd begun their journey by consecrating themselves, by setting themselves aside to God. They'd started to move in the direction that God had taken them, wherever it led them, and in God's timing as well too. And now, having seen his mighty hand fighting for them, they are now ready to commemorate and tell the story of all that he has done. And this is one of the reasons why, as a church, when we baptize people, we ask them to make a public declaration of faith, their testimony of what God has done in their life. And so I want to ask you, have you been baptized into new life like this? Maybe you've been following Jesus for a while now, and you can even point to things that you've seen God do in your life. You've got testimonies of what God has done in your journey and in your story as well. But you haven't taken this step of baptism. And maybe this is one of the ways you need to respond now, just like the Israelites. And thirdly, I just want to note from this passage that when God does the miraculous, it always blesses us, and it certainly blessed the Israelites at the time. But first and foremost, his actions serve to demonstrate his glory. We read, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. God did it. Not Moses, not Israel's obedience. It was all because of him. And so, finally, in Exodus 15, the newly forged nation stands on the opposite bank, their victory over Pharaoh and his army complete, and their response is to spontaneously burst into song. You know when you're on tour and you're on, you're on the tour bus and day after day they play the same song on the bus every day until it's so ingrained in your memory that you later on down the line you just hear the first few bars of that song and you're instantly transported back to that trip? Well, this is a bit like that. This is the song that Moses writes and Miriam and the women pick up, complete with music and with dancing. And here we see the fulfillment of God's command back in Exodus 13 to commemorate this day. It tells the story of what God has done, reminding us again that God has fought for his people and won the victory. Here are some of the lyrical highlights. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. 
the Lord is a warrior. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? In essence, the, remind, the song reminds us of two things. God has delivered and God has destroyed. And this is the right response for the Israelites to make, having experienced what they've gone through. And while we, we, you know, we have to take no pleasure in the death of the Egyptian armies, of course not, we should also recognize the sense of jubilation to be found when victory is confirmed. You know, in World War II, after Hitler's suicide, the, the peace treaties being you know, negotiated and VE Day being announced, there were spontaneous celebrations in streets around the world. Peace had come. War was over. And even in our time, when, to be honest with you, we can be very insulated from the effects of war. When we see on the news Ukrainians celebrating after driving the Russian troops back, we can understand why. When you've been enslaved and then redeemed, you understand what it truly means to be free. The songs you sing then are sung with way more gusto. And we, the followers of Jesus, we too know what it has been like to be enslaved to our sin, to our shame. But if we have a right view of who Jesus is, then we also know what it's like to be set free, to be given glory, to be given honour, to be invited into the family of God, to have all of our past actions not count as punishment towards us. So we can join in with the song of the Israelites and sing with equal gusto. In fact, Revelation 15 tells us that in the new heaven and the new earth, we will sing the song of Moses together with the rest of the heavenly host. And even today, we sing songs like it. I wonder if you could take an Israelite who lived through this experience and play them one of the songs we sing when we worship today, what they might make of it. Imagine if you could take an Israelite and perhaps play them the song, No Longer Slaves, which says, and I'll, I'll read you some of the lyrics. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You split the sea so I could walk right through it. My fears are drowned in perfect love. You rescued me so I can stand and sing. I am a child of God. I bet if you could play that for an Israelite who experienced the Exodus, they would say that's exactly like the song of Moses that we sang on the opposite end of the bank in Exodus 15. And today we get to join with them and sing. Now incredibly, all of this is day one of a 40-year journey which has just begun for the Israelites. But for us, looking back through history, there's a nice little postscript for us at the end of Exodus 15. After three days of wandering with nothing to drink, they come upon the waters of Marah, which is bitter and unfit to consume. But we read that Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. Another miracle, another foretaste of Christ for us, who by his own death on a plank of wood became sweetness for us and allowed us to drink deeply of the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, we need to sing songs of freedom like this, don't we? Because we know what we've been saved from and what we've been saved into. The Israelites' journey has become our journey. Their story is our story as well. 
we too are people of the Exodus, baptized from death to our old lives and resurrected into the glorious new life that we now enjoy because of Jesus. We too must consecrate ourselves and commemorate what God has done. And you know, the way that we worship is a key part of this response. Yes, we can sing now, and in a moment we'll get the opportunity to do so together. But we also need to remember that worship is what we do with our whole lives. And that means we need to get right with God. We need to deal with the sin in our own camp before we can press further into his purposes. It means we need to consecrate ourselves and honour God first in everything we do, whether it's our work, our home life, our school, our friendships, the choices we make on a daily basis. We want to set aside the first fruits to God, don't we? It means serving him in every area of our lives, not just the stuff we do in church, but looking at everything, our work, our all, as an act of service and of worship to him. And it means dying to self and choosing to follow daily his path over our own. Shall we continue on this journey together? Let me pray, and then we'll have a chance to respond. Father, I thank you so much for this glorious and triumphant story of the Exodus. Thank you, Lord, that even though there's some uncomfortable bits in there, that it reminds us that you are a God who fights for your people, that you are a God who wins victory for your people. And you demonstrated that in the fullness, not just to the Israelites in these times, but to us now in the person of Jesus. Thank you that Jesus has won the victory for us that we could never have, have won on our own. Thank you that because of him, the water is made sweet for us. We have been invited into the family of God. And we, too, are now the people of the Exodus who can stand and sing of the freedom that you have won for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What more can we say? But we worship you now and forevermore. Amen.